You're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, a podcast hosted by me, Brett Fisher. I'm a DevOps online course creator, consultant, and a Docker captain. This podcast contains clips from my weekly YouTube live show, where I host a real-time Ask Me Anything style chat with guests and anyone who shows up on YouTube chat, many of whom are students of my Docker courses. You can find out more information, including show notes for this episode at brettfisher.com slash podcast. That's B-R-E-T-F-I-S-H-E-R dot com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year, container fans. In this episode, I talk with Brees Fernandez of Weaveworks to discuss their latest Kubernetes and Docker projects. We also talk about GitOps, which is my favorite way to set up application deployments and infrastructure changes. As a reminder, this podcast is listener-supported by those of you that buy my Docker, Swarm, and Kubernetes courses. If you're already one of my 130,000 students, I thank you so much for your support. You can get coupons for those courses at brettfisher.com, where you'll also find my YouTube Live links, my container newsletter, and other free resources. Thanks so much for listening. Now on with the show. Um, on the show today, I have Brees Fernandez out of uh, London, I believe, from Weavework. Uh, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Brett. Uh, thanks for having me on your, on your show. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. I've been a big fan of Weaveworks for years. And now that they are sort of leading the pack in the GitOps movement, I'm super uh excited that's such a i say that so, so often super excited like everybody says super excited but i am truly super excited so let me uh, tell you yeah go ahead yeah it's a pretty exciting place to work at so uh some really nice people here yeah um you're actually the first guest on the show from weave uh weave works and i'm 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 excited again i'm super excited about uh talking about this stuff because it's one of those things where you use a tool for so often and and, and you've used it for years and you've just never spent a lot of time with anyone from the, the company, right? So you don't see the people making the product, so it's great to have you. Um, let me tell you all a little bit about Brees. Uh, he started working with Docker several years ago on his own startup before joining Weaveworks in London to work with Kubernetes, right? So then he helped codify and communicate the GitOps approach, which is what we're going to be talking about today. And he helps companies make the most of Kubernetes and building production-grade platforms. Brees is joining us from London, like I mentioned. And let's let's just start with your background and the background of uh, Weaveworks. What's that all about? Yeah, so I'll, I'll go through Weaveworks first, uh, and we can talk about my background, which is a, a bit varied and, and weird. Uh, but so Weaveworks, we, we actually started as a company um, about four or five years ago. So we were about as old as Kubernetes itself. And we were trying to help people with cloud native, basically cloud native computing. Uh, as a company, and so we, we started building products. The first one we built was uh, a network overlay called WeaveNet, which is quite popular. Um, and then we, we, we started running our own platform, our own SaaS platform, and we were deciding, you know, which, which orchestrator are we going to use? We're going to containerize all our applications. How are we going to do that? Um, so we, we picked, as a company, and this was before I joined, uh, we, we picked Kubernetes, and um, the decision has kind of carried forward. And now we've we've learned a lot over operating Kubernetes over four and a half years, four years, uh, since the very early days. So we've tried to codify that approach and kind of share that with everybody else. So that's kind of the, the path of the company. So we still have the Weave Cloud product, which is like a SaaS product, which um, lets you lets you manage Kubernetes. So you plug that into your cluster, and on, on uh, and you have a SaaS platform. And then now we've we've been doing a lot of work with much larger companies to kind of help them do build their own platform internally, essentially. So that's that's the very brief and short history of, of uh, Weaveworks. 
Uh, I think we're some things to note is we're really lucky to have some uh, of our senior team members in WeWorks are very plugged into the cloud native ecosystem. So, uh, for example, our founder, Alexis uh, Richardson, was the chair for the technical oversight committee for the CNCF. Uh, and he's, he's still on the technical oversight committee. Uh, so we, we've got quite a good community ties uh, and we do a lot of open source work in general. So we're, we're pretty... Uh, we're, we're very much an open source company. A lot of the stuff we do is open source, um, including kind of our entire data backend is now open source, is now a CNCF project. So. Nice. That's, that is a good summary. Um, I am most familiar with Weave Cloud and like Weave Net and stuff like that. That was uh, some of the original stuff. And uh, just recently, I was poking around the site and seeing how many open source projects you have now. <laughs> How many products out of that you have, and uh, it's a lot. It's a lot. I think I felt like we could fill the whole show just talking about all the cool things the company is doing. Um, but we're here on GitOps. So, how did you get started with GitOps, and you know, and WeaveWorks? Like you personally, like what was that? Um, what was that all about? Yeah, so it's interesting. So I, I actually joined as a, as an engineer, uh, as a developer, and um, we were. I, I joined just a few weeks before a, a very large conference, Kubernetes the KubeCon, uh, and the idea was, you know, we, we needed some topics for KubeCon, and they uh, the team really didn't have a lot of spare capacity to onboard me on the engineering side, so I just said, okay, fine, I can do something about GitOps, I can start talking about that kind of stuff. And so that's really how it got started. Uh, for, for me personally, within Weave, uh, within Weave, WeaveWorks, is kind of just doing a bunch of presentations at conferences and trying to describe what we were doing internally and share that with the outside world. So that's how I got started. But in fact, a lot of the ideas, I think, I'd been using myself. I just hadn't had the, um, I guess I'd, I'd never taken the step to codify them into a kind of an approach. Um, but I'd been using, you know, declarative configuration before uh, and continuous uh, delivery of kind of uh, infrastructure configuration. I'd been using that in my previous role in my own startup uh, before that. So it, it was fairly familiar. It was just uh, I, I had to codify this stuff. Um, while I was, when I started that uh, at WeaveWorks uh, to share it with, with the public. Yeah, I, that's true. I think a lot of us that are at least trying to be on the leading edge of this stuff, um, whether it's containers themselves or orchestration or, uh, you know, the DevOps term in itself, like a lot of this stuff, uh, if, you're, if you're on that leading edge, you tend to be doing it already. You just didn't have it formulated as a, a nice page like you have on GitOps on on WeaveWorks um, or yeah stuff like that right yeah uh, and and that's the case for everything right even organi organizational approaches um, kind of the the peopleware side of stuff a lot of the time if you if you kind of deliberately think about what you're doing um, you'll find a bunch of new tools and techniques uh, but it's actually quite useful to have them come together as a descri described by somebody. It's a nice framework, uh, and mostly it's useful to communicate it with others. Uh, sometimes as a, as a practitioner, you'll know what you're doing, uh, but it becomes difficult to communicate it with others. So what we've tried to do is make that communication step really easy around good engineering practice when it comes to operations, basically. Uh, yeah, I think... Um when I first read, I'm just going to call it the manifesto, essentially, that you all put out a couple of years ago, um, I, it was something that I had, I had been working with developer teams that were getting more into the ops side, right? Mostly, it wasn't the other way around. It wasn't necessarily operators trying to learn development, but the developers were getting deeper and deeper into the ops stack. And they were so used to the Git tool 
and things like GitHub that uh, we we were trying to use a lot of what I would consider maybe pre-container or legacy tools at this point and trying to use them in a way that we could codify them, describe them in you know YAML or some other configuration file and then version that. But it was increasingly challenge, challenging to make all that automated in a reliable way that now like, you know, the, all these GitOps tools are doing, you, you know, you didn't, the way that every, every one of those tools had a different command line structure and it didn't, and it had, wasn't necessarily, um, uh, ephemeral is the wrong word, but uh, it, it wasn't, um, can't think of the right word. It didn't describe it in a way so that you could reliably implement something and then back out, right? You couldn't go to old versions. Yeah. There was no way to get back from where you were. Um, and so using the Git uh, log process of like describing your history wasn't always reliable. And it was hard. I mean, it, there was times where we were banging our head against the wall with AWS trying to, you know, implement something and then realize that it wasn't working well and un undo that change was always the hardest part in infrastructure. Unlike, uh, you know, code developers that could just, you know, revert to an old commit. Yeah, and I think there's still some fundamental problems here uh, around data, right? Like stepping back data schemas is still a, an open problem that, that hasn't been figured out. Uh, there are some people doing some really good work around it, but it's still genuinely difficult. There's a f I think there's like a fundamental problem. Um, and, and it used to be that we had some incidental complexity around kind of rolling back changes yeah. that didn't need to be there. So what we really what we're trying to do is get rid of that incidental complexity and uh, we can actually concentrate on the things that really are difficult to do fundamentally and not just because we have bad tools um, which is yeah. kind of that, that's the issue you end up you know once you've solved those infrastructure rollback problems then you start talking about data rollbacks and schema rollbacks and that's that's the next step up and much more complicated right. so you want to get to those meaty problems as fast as we can basically yeah, and I think that uh, one, the more normal, I mean, uh, Kelsey Hightower, I think, had a tweet one time we talked about that eventually DevOps won't be a thing. And and I think some people misunderstood that as in, like, we're going to replace it with something. And I think what he was really talking more about was that it will be embedded. Our mindset will be such that it's embedded in everything we do, the tools we use, the, you know, the the monitoring tools, our mindset, everything we do, we we automatically assume those approaches and those workflows. And I, and I really feel like GitOps is that next evolution of the tools eventually that survive this evolution will all have this mindset of, I need to, I need to roll back. I need to be able to iterate each change discreetly and understand the, the nuances of how to undo changing uh, of infrastructure, right? Because a lot of times we're permanently, you know, our, the history of tech is that we permanently change things when we touch them. And, um, we don't really have that consistent across the board, like you're saying. So this is a great conversation. And for those of you that are, this is the first time you're hearing about GitOps, maybe we should back up a second and give you like the, the 101 uh, sort of elevator pitch of GitOps. Do you want to you throw that out there? Yeah, absolutely. So, so GitOps is a bunch of things. You can think about it in a bunch of ways. So really, it's an operational approach. It's how you operate on your infrastructure. Um, and it's it's derived from you know from practical hands-on knowledge and prior art. So there's been a lot of work being done in the infrastructure as code space, and so we're reusing that shamelessly, right? Because this is good work. Uh, and so what we've added with GitOps are some ideas around um, how do you do control loops for your infrastructure, not just an application one-step application, but actually have a control loop, and how do you enable rollbacks, history, auditing, etc. 
Uh, and so really, like the core value is you can do operations faster. That, that is the core value to your company, right? If, if, we, if we talk to a CEO, how, why do you care about GitOps? You can change your infrastructure faster and safely, right? You can increase the speed of change while reducing the number of defects. And we've seen that in practice with some of the customers we've been working with, right? We've seen, because you can measure that, this, that kind of stuff, like the number of commits on your infrastructure, number of changes per week. And so you see changes going up, like the rate of change going up, while the rate of defect and downtime going down because you've got better safety and security uh, tools, essentially. Uh, so so do, that's the kind of high value, the high level pitch is you can go faster, safely, uh, which makes a big, it's a big difference in infrastructure. Yeah. Um, and we've had this conversation before about GitOps and what is GitOps. And it's, it's, it's funny because it's a little bit like DevOps in that people... It, it it does involve tools, but it's more about process and workflow and people than it is about the tools that do it, right? And uh, DevOps, I think, is very much confused about the same way where we think that, you know, every tool claims are DevOps. I, I have the word DevOps in my title, which shouldn't be there, right? It's not, <laughs> it's not a it's job. Same as, <laughs> it's the same as Agile, right? Agile had yeah. the same problem, right? It's like the, the practices versus principles. And so I think what we're seeing is we see a lot of people talk about practices uh, rather than talk about principles. But really, um, Agile, DevOps, GitOps, those those are about the principles. It's about the why and not necessarily the how. Um, and, and so really, GitOps has the word Git in it, which is a bit unfortunate, but it's not really about Git. Git just happens to be a really good tool to, to implement those ideas. Yeah. Uh, and it's a nice marketing term, right, GitOps. It's, it's a nice marketing term that people can remember. Uh, but I think it's the, yeah, moving towards the principle approach is quite important. Yeah, I, I uh, and of course, you know, once you once you're thoroughly invested in the principles and you've got those down, um, obviously, tools is going to be one of the next things you focus on, and and can possibly for some people be the harder part. Honestly, though, I find that the the longer we try to implement DevOps and other things like this, uh, the more I find it that tools isn't the hard part; it's the it's the principles part, right? It's the things that people forgot. Um, so why don't uh, so. There's a couple of things, and I and I love that you have set up principles of DevOps, and it's it's almost it's not quite a checklist, but it's getting pretty close to how to really determine if you are doing GitOps, right? Because we kind of have that problem with DevOps, like I stated, and um, we had a previous conversation here with some of the team from CloudBees, and we were talking about that just because you're putting YAML files in Git doesn't mean you're doing GitOps, right? No, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and they and they set up some some pretty things of this is this like if you're doing this you're not doing GitOps if you're doing this. So um, why don't we go through them one by one because it's a great list. Uh, the first one on the list there is the entire system is described declaratively. Yeah, so so this is really interesting, right? Because we've we've heard people. Uh, this is kind of from the infrastructure as code. Uh, side of things. So we've heard people in the past say, well, we do, you know, we do infrastructure as code. Uh, and when we actually ask them, please show us your repository, show us what you mean, what they actually mean is they have a bunch of scripts. Um, that is not infrastructure as code. That is a, that's a big step, right? What we're really talking about here is data. We want infrastructure as data. And that idea is not a new one. It's it's really old. So Microsoft has had the data-driven, data, data uh, model-driven data center, I think it was called at the time. So, so that's that's an old idea, but it's a big difference. So we're actually, it's a set of data that describes your infrastructure. 
And, and the reason why that matters is it's much easier to manipulate and validate data than it is to validate code. If you if you want to validate code, you essentially have to solve the halting problem, right? That, that's that's the problem you're facing with. You have fundamental computational difficulties in validating code correctness, which you do not have for data. So if you have a data structure, it's very easy to validate for correctness in a way that a set of scripts is not. So we want the entire system to be described declaratively. And when we say the entire system, we mean the entire system. We, we don't want any bits of our infrastructure to not be described because as soon as it's not described, you, you can't really, you don't really get an understanding of what the system should look like, what your intent for the system is. So that's really important. It's actually encoding human intent in a, decla in a, in a declaration uh, so that you can kind of start manipulating it. And just the just that, just declaring human intent in a declaration alone is already is already quite useful. So that's kind of the first principle. Yeah, I like that. And of course, you know, uh, it's one of these things where you've got to start somewhere. And uh, one of the things things that I talk about a lot when I talk at conferences is around the the idea of a lot of these things, whether it was twelve factor or agile or DevOps or whatever. Um, these things are it's a process, and you know, obviously, you can't go from no infrastructure as data, like you're just like you're saying. And go from that to zero to 60, right? You can't suddenly have everything deployed as immutable infrastructure. And um, I tend to lean teams towards starting at things that change the most, right? So like automating your deployments is something that I actually prefer. If they've already got the infrastructure out there and, they've, and they're already doing work, and they're now trying to get this more in a, in a declarative format, right? I always focus on the apps because I feel like we're not we're usually not deploying infrastructure every day <laughs> hopefully uh uh unless you're like dynamically scaling when, and then if you're doing that you're probably already infrastructure as code um but yeah uh it's this is when we're talking about these it's like uh sort of a stand on my soapbox moment of saying this is oh you're, there's a beginning and an end and the end is probably you're never going to be there like you're never going to be perfect you're you're never going to have everything being able to roll back without any side effects or any um, you know, weird things happen. So yeah, cool. I like that. I like the, uh, the entire system. So, all right. So the next one you have up here is, um, yeah, I mean, for the entire system as well, I think, um, you're, you're going to be dependent on third parties. So you, you can't guarantee that there's a declarative way of configuring your system at all. So a Cisco switch is configured by logging in and typing some command at a terminal. That is how you configure it, um, and you, you, there's no declarative API to do this. So you can you can write a declarative shell on top, but it's hard. And right. the, the cost the cost benefit here sometimes does doesn't work. It's, sometimes it's okay to, to not be there, but um, yeah, so. and, and that's true. That's a, that's that's what I feel about a lot of the. Uh, um, I'm not gonna. They're not really legacy tools, but it's the the configuration the server configuration tools as well that we've had for decades now. You know, the puppet, the chef, the ansible, the salt stack. Like these are essentially to me wrappers on top of a system that is designed to like anything you do is a permanent change that can't be undone. And these tools try to wrap some sort of declarative approach over top of it, but it's never perfect, right? You can never uninstall Python to guarantee that there's not even a single file there <laughs> that was there before that wasn't there before, right? Um, yeah, it's tough. Uh, all right, number two. I like it. Number two is the canonical desired system state versioned in Git. So that's kind of an awkward way of phrasing it, but it, 
captures everything you want in there. Yeah. So um, canonical is the idea that you have a single place. Like it's a, it's a, it's a dry principle, right? Don't repeat yourself. So don't repeat yourself when you're coding means don't have two sources of truth for the same piece of data, essentially, or the same idea. Um, and so the canonical system, desired system state. So desired means that it's your intent. You're encoding your intent in a single place and you're versioning it in Git. Um, so this is quite important. The versioning gives you a lot, right? If you have versioning and you have declarative state, essentially every change is a transaction that can be rolled back really easily. So already, you know, we've not gone into some of the later items in the list, but you already get a lot of value by just implementing those two things. Uh, so this is why kind of having everything in Git is, is a quite good idea. And I've found that Git is a really good place for humans and software to work together. So um, on the internet, nobody knows whether you're a dog or not, right? That's, that's the idea. And it's the same way with machines. Nobody knows whether the, 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 the agent making a commit is a human or a piece of software. So it's a good place for human and software to collaborate. An interesting point. Um, as the as the AIs take over, it uh, it's going to be less and less less and less humans doing that work. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 I, as an operator, like someone who's got that sysadmin background, uh, you know, I still today am teaching people that are running data centers about Git, right? And uh, you know, having them create their GitHub account for the first time. And so for me, I, I really appreciate the idea that. Git is this place for it because it is, it's the one place that I feel like on the internet, we've, we've actually figured out as the, it's the best way so far that we can get operators to collaborate with developers on the, the stuff we're deploying. Right. And it's, it's not a tool. It started out as a tool simply for software code and has now, now journalists use it, use it, you know, web, web uh, editors use it that are just making text on a website, like so much, uh, other utilities have been wrapped around Git, and I feel like this is that this is that perfect place for us to take the operators who aren't traditionally working heavily heavily with developers and take the um, the tool and use the best parts of it. So that, like you said, like the Git log is is truly showing the history of infrastructure. When if I can show someone that and say, look, you can actually, you know, you're an executive and you don't know all these tools, you don't have Git installed in your computer. But I can give you read access to the Git repo so that you can look at our change history and change rate on infrastructure. There's not a lot, excuse me, there's not a lot out there that will do that, right? If you, before this situation, you would have to be an engineer, but, you know, giving a mid-level manager access to see this, it, one, it makes them feel special. <laughs> and two, it makes it look like you, your, your, your show, you're, you know, your, your infrastructure isn't a mystery. It isn't like, oh, we got to go talk to that person over there to know whether or not the service changed yesterday, which is the de facto standard in most organizations is there's one or two people that know whether or not infrastructure changed and the way that they find out how it changed isn't always obvious either, right? They're, they're diving into logs and pulling stuff out. And so this immediately gives us a super clear view of what that, what that's doing, what the change rate is. So, yeah. yeah. Transparency makes so much difference. So, so we implement all this stuff internally. So we, we have a really transparent process for managing both our cloud infrastructure, but also our IT infrastructure. So like permissions, et cetera, which means that basically it's all self-service, self right? You, you can trigger everything self-service. Uh, you can see exactly what you're doing. And then 
the set of people who actually have write access is quite limited. But because it's so permissive on read and suggestions, it means the rate of change can be quite high. So it, we're no longer bottlenecking on, the, on key individuals, which is a big deal. Um, and, and, and Git is actually a, a very kind of the, uh, the tool itself. I'm not going to talk about the tool itself, but the model of how Git deals with change is excellent. It's a really, really strong model of um, how you think about change, change sets, etc. Um, and and I mean, I, 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 I quite dislike talking about blockchains in general. I think that's kind of a, a super hype term that doesn't help. Right. But the ideas of having a Merkle tree as the the to to do versioning is is a really good idea, right? It's a fundamentally good idea that has very very strong properties on uh, assuring that changes can't be made without people knowing about them. So kind of um, I, I really like the technology underlying it. The ideas underlying it are very strong. Yeah, it's it, like it's funny you're mentioning blockchain because the ledger. I, I just have yeah, to say yeah. ledger uh, because uh, that yeah. that. that <laughs> I actually had someone recently come to me and they said they had they they follow someone about blockchain. They're not even in tech and they just follow this particular person that talks about um, Bitcoin and blockchain stuff. And they, and he asked, and he asked me what is the ledger, and <laughs> and what's funny is that that's exactly what the Git log is. It's this sort of uh, you know this this thing that cannot be undone once it's done and distributed across a bunch of people. Not quite the same as uh, as sort of the guarantees of a blockchain ledger but anyway i had to, i just had to throw the keyword term in there so that the robots on the internet would then suddenly yeah, pick yeah, up yeah. this show <laughs> we'd get more hits because we said blockchain and ledger um that's yeah. yeah so one of the things about um that's kind of implied i feel like with this number two here is that the operators that are used to shelling into servers and running you know cube control commands or docker commands the to me the number two implies that you're no longer doing that and you probably shouldn't even have access in a lot to a lot of people having that kind of access to do that. You're now doing Git commits as the way you change rather than SSHing in. And we, that was one of the, you're doing it wrongs from one of our previous YouTube videos here was if you're shelling into a server and typing, you know, tool commands, you're doing it wrong. Right. Absolutely. Right. So, um, that that is one one thing that that's I mean we literally have a slide that shows exactly this right it used to be that you your operator your person would have direct access to your systems we literally put a big cancel sign on that on that arrow and just change it to like your operator now has access to a repository uh, and then the repository changes are driven into your infrastructure through some agent um, and and this is really important because actually auditing direct access changes is a certifiable nightmare right <laughs> if you want to audit. Um, how people change your infrastructure and you let them shell into it, uh, it's just so painful to have a, a kind of coherent understanding of your infrastructure at any point in time becomes very, very difficult. So by moving that out and putting that in Git, you have a really strong single point where you can actually apply things like auditing, like what's happening to my infrastructure? Well, it's all in the Git log. And the Git log will tell you everything you need for an audit, which is who made what change when and why, right? Those are like the four things you really care about. And, and all of that is recorded. Yeah. Um, so uh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, great. Um, we're on to number three, and that is kind of basically the end tail of the conversation we just had, which is approved changes can be automatically applied to the system. Yeah, so, so now you have this Git repository and you can make changes to it. Um, 
you're going to have some agent that's going to be running somewhere that's going to be listening to changes and reacting to changes in that repository and applying them to your infrastructure automatically. And we talk about approved changes because you, you want to have a gateway here. That doesn't mean that any change can be uh, accepted and automatically applied. And so the idea is that this agent is running in right now we're talking about the agent in one direction right it's taking changes from your gate repository and applying them to your system and what's really interesting here because we split up what the changes are and how they're implemented into two separate concerns right how, what the changes are that's declarative that's in git how they're implemented that's done in the agent it means that the agent with the credentials can be moved into your security zone so it it can be moved into your your kind of secure area on your system so previously, you might use CIOps, what we what we call internally CIOps. CIOps means that you have credentials in your CI pipeline that then go and poke your production system to deploy a new version. That's an anti-pattern, right? If your CI toolchain has direct access to your production cluster, the CI toolchain is a very large attack surface area. Uh, not only is it a large surface area for attacks, but it's basically designed explicitly for remote code execution, right? It's it's kind of like the worst environment you could imagine in terms of security. So by splitting those two things into two separate concerns, you're moving the deployment agent inside your security zone, and then it's just listening to something outside of the zone. But it's a, it's a one-way, it's a read access, right? So you're reading the changes, you're applying some verification to make sure that the changes that you're seeing are valid and one way of doing that is for example signing git commits right so we have that infrastructure in place already there's a peak a public key infrastructure in place for that kind of stuff um, that's the tooling already supports it and then once those changes are noticed by the agent they're applied to your system and this is where you get the speed up right this yeah. is where you get the speed yeah and that's using tools like flux right that's right yeah yeah so so flux does this exact thing right flux is the deployment agent you would use in this case specifically for kubernetes yeah, and um, let's just check that out real quick while we're uh, while we're sitting here talking about this particular thing. So this is uh, Flux is an uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Flux is an open source uh, tool that WeaveWorks started. That's now uh, a CNCF sandbox project, which basically means that it, it's getting wider industry support and uh, adoption, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and it also means that the governance of the project is now owned by an open source community and no longer by WeaveWorks. I mean, we, we're we obviously, you know, still develop it, still very influential. A lot of the people uh, who work on Flux are WeaveWorks employees. But funda fundamentally, it means that the community now owns Flux um, and owns the future of Flux. And that, that's quite an exciting development. Oh. Yeah. Um, th the... The uh, the features of it are when I first looked at it uh, and back when it was announced. I, I don't remember when that was last year. I'm not sure if it, if it was this year or last year. Um, but I, I was mostly focused on how it connected to Kubernetes and just made the changes. But it sounds like it's getting more and more features. What what's some of the stuff uh, that it does now that maybe it didn't do on release or something? Do you do you remember any of that stuff? Yeah, so I think the validation is one of them. Uh, we've also um, de um, developed some hooks so that you can do pre and post, essentially, application hooks uh, to do things like on-cluster on validation. Uh, we're, we're, working, we're working quite closely with the uh, Flagger and Argo CD teams. So these are two other open source projects uh, to, to try and build a coherent picture around GitOps deployment and GitOps pipelines. 
so right now we've, we've, we're doing some very interesting work with those two teams. Uh, so uh, Flagger is, is a project by um, another one of, of another WeWorks employee, uh, Stefan Prodan, who who put together Flagger. Who's it's, and Flagger is a is a progressive delivery tool. So it, it uses GitOps to do things like Canary releases or blue green deployments. Um, and then Argo CD has some really strong pipelining tools. And so expect some expect some announcement in the next few weeks about those three projects, and expect close collaboration in the future to to kind of drive a, a more coherent experience that isn't just about moving uh, moving manifests into Kubernetes, but has a kind of a, a broader context uh, on operations, pipelines, et cetera. Yeah. And I think you said this already, it comes in as a GitHub operator. Is that right? I'm sorry, a, a Kubernetes operator? Yeah. So so Flux, what we'll do is, is Flux will sit in your Kubernetes cluster. It will listen to your Git repository changes, and it will listen to your um, image registry changes. So if you have a new Docker image, for example, and then you can set it configure it to obviously anytime the uh, repository change in anytime the git control or configuration repository changes those changes will be applied to the cluster but it's also smart enough to do things like automated deployments um, if you give it a certain policy so for example uh, you could say you could tell flux to look at the image registry and whenever there's a new image that has a, a semantic version tag that comes up in your registry flux could automatically deploy that into your into your cluster now, obviously, because we're doing GitOps, Flux won't just deploy it and not record that somewhere. What it will actually do is it'll create a Git commit back into your configuration repository. And this is the human software collaboration I was talking <laughs> yeah. about earlier. Yeah, this is, this, so I was, it, it was my leading question. That was my question that was going to be next. Is like, how do I know that happened? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so Flux will make a commit and say, hey, I'm Flux. Uh, you told me that every time there's a new image that matches this pattern, I should deploy it. So I'm making a commit to, to, to that effect. And now I'm going to apply that commit to my infrastructure. Um, yeah, and it's it's the the scope of this is broad, right? Because Flux is essentially deploying Kubernetes objects. If it's a valid Kubernetes object, it can be deployed, which means that it opens up the door to doing GitOps with CRDs, so that other you know you have providers and you have that control loop of let's say an infrastructure provider or a DNS provider. Well, you can now do GitOps for your external DNS, uh, which is quite exciting, really. Um, oh, interesting. So that's, that's a positive feature of of using Flux in that way, is that it'll work for other objects, not just the standard Kubernetes objects, but any any object. Yeah. Including, and this is this is some of the stuff we're working on actively right now, including things like the cluster API, so like machines and clusters, which means you can start doing definition of clusters through GitOps. You'll be able to provision clusters through GitOps once you have an initial kind of um, bootstrap cluster set up. You can start doing more things with GitOps by setting up new and other clusters, uh, which is something that we're we're actively working on at the moment. Yeah, um, yeah. So those of you that have ever built a uh, Kubernetes cluster, there's and there's now uh, a formal API getting a, built around that, and I, I believe kubeadmin runs against that API. I think. Um, so if you're using kubeadmin to build your clusters then it's, you're already doing this. You're just using a human tool. So a lot of us, um, if we wanted to automate in the past, here's a great example, right? You just mentioned the, the cluster API. In the past, what I would have done was I would have got something like Ansible or Puppet, and I would have, I would have built some of the YAML for that tool around running kube admin commands. 
And then that tool would have a, would have run kubeadmin commands to for me, which kubeadmin is designed for humans to run largely. Um, that would then talk to the cluster API possibly, or use that API rather to build out clusters. It's not like that API is running some, somewhere. But um, what we're doing, what you're the differencing here is that, and it's a subtle difference because I'm thinking, well, okay, so we're not necessarily needing the other infrastructure tool at this point, and it's all done in the cluster. So you technically, I guess, have to have a Kubernetes cluster to start with because there's got to be something. So, so um, yeah, <laughs> I, I see this a lot in my training, right? It's like it, 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 it cannot be turtles all the way down. Uh, so there's got to be a layer somewhere where you provision something that's not GitOps, right? Like yeah. There's going to be a, a fun, fun, somebody's going to run some command somewhere and provision something manually, or at least it's going to be imperative rather than declarative somewhere. Uh, but everything else on top of that is going to be uh, declarative. So, so yes, there's going to be a layer where you have to provision this yourself. But uh, the the experience that we want to create really is, you want a new cluster or you want a new virtual machine. What you do is you define it in a YAML file or some other configuration file, and then you commit that to Git. Right, that that is, and that triggers everything else you need to do. Uh, and and you want to remove the machine, you want to deprovision a, a, a new a machine. Well, then you just remove the file and make the commit, and that will do exactly what you intended to do. That's the experience we're trying to drive towards. Uh, and right now, you know, it's it's not complete. It's hard to create a complete experience around this. Um, there are still some bits missing for the entire picture, but we've we're getting very close in certain um, certain platforms uh, to get that kind of uh, working exactly the way we want it. So we, we've got that working on on things like bare metal, right? If you want to do that on bare metal, then we've got that working on bare metal. Uh, we've got that working on uh, AWS with EKS, for example. Uh, and we're trying to broaden that approach to multi many other platforms. Um, yeah. Um, and the, uh, the file names, I mean, that the file types that are supported here, that was actually a question from chat is... What is it reading from your repo? Is it reading Helm values, Terraform files? Like, uh, I, I'm, I'm guessing at some point there's a there's a, I guess a list of CRDs. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Is it just supported? Yeah. File types? So any, yeah. anything anything that is a valid Kubernetes object. So Flux is very Kubernetes centric. Uh, GitOps itself isn't about Kubernetes, although it's a really good implementation of it. But it's um, so, so GitOps is kind of a much broader concept. And we can talk about that later. But uh, Flux, anything that's a valid Kubernetes object can be driven and um, uh, and installed and deployed through Flux. Namespaces, services, CRDs, CRD definitions, roles, role bindings, um, persistent volume claims, persistent volume definitions, all of that stuff. Uh, so you, you want a new you want a new volume on your e on your cluster. Um, you want to provision in, like an Elastic Block Store. Uh, AWS Elastic Block Store volume, um, you create a piece of YAML, you commit it, Flux brings it into your cluster, the local operator picks that up and then provisions the volume in, in AWS. Um, and, and for you, the experience as a user is really good, right? Because you can use uh, templating very extensively. You, you were talking about data. We're no longer talking about code. So it means that templating becomes trivial. So you can build very powerful templates that really empower and, and, and enable the developers uh, and the operators to kind of do lots of things very quickly in a very clean way. Uh, so this is quite nice. Yeah. yeah. So when you say templating, are you talking about like customize or Helm? Um... So um, I, this is, it's pretty much template system agnostic. Okay. Um, so for example, for Helm, the, the, we, we support Helm 
through this process too, right? Uh, so um, for Helm, what you'd do is you'd have a value file, and then you would so you'd have a, a small CRD that would point to the values and that would point to the chart declaratively. So you'd have your CRD pointing your, your tiny CRD. It's like five six lines of YAML that would point to the chart that would point to the values, uh, and then that would be a declaration of your in, of what you want installed on your cluster. Um, and then that would be the, the object that's sent to Kubernetes. And then the operator in Kubernetes would take that, grab the chart, and then apply it on the cluster. Makes sense. Um, and then the last part of this is number four, software agents to ensure correctness and alert on divergence. So that, rogue, so this is that basically me being that rogue sure. admin logging in and, and changing the system. <laughs> Yeah, I like to call those pepcac errors. I don't know whether you've heard the term, term before, but a problem exists between keyboard and chair. <laughs> so, so this these are operator errors, right? Yeah, the, yeah. So this is really nice at kind of solving operator errors, and, and I like to think of this as closing the loop, right? So, so far, what we've been describing with one, two, and three is a one-directional process, and this closes the loop. This is continuous monitoring, and this is very different to what we're kind of used to this is where most of the difference actually comes in it's um it's no longer a case of that you you trigger a job that then modifies your infrastructure what you're actually doing is you have an agent that is continuously running and applying the correct configuration on your system so you have a very very tight loop and, and that loop is is less than a minute long right so if something goes wrong with your infrastructure uh, and for example you lose a machine and and you declare i should have seven machines and the agent notices well there's only six machines here the agent within a minute will start creating a new machine for you in your virtual, you know, in say AWS GCP or, or Azure, whatever it is, even on-premise, if you have something like uh, or on bare metal, um, that can still trigger a provisioning step. So, so this is kind of having that tight control loop matters a lot. And that, that brings out an enormous amount of difference. Hmm. Um, and if the agent is capable of um, bringing, you know, this is tr drift correction, right? You're, when your system drifts away from its configuration, if the agent is capable of bringing the system back from drift back into kind of the, the, the golden path, then it will do so immediately. And if it is not capable of doing so, then it will alert a human. So humans get very quick feedback on what's going on with the system. Uh, whereas before you'd have to wait until an alert triggers by kind of a service alert, a service disruption. Here you're gonna see the alert will come uh, and say, my system no longer matches my intentions and me as a software, uh, you know, Flux can't remedy the situation. We can't fix it automatically. And that's a really useful thing to know as an operator, because as soon as that happens, that means your system is is no longer meeting your intentions, and you want to know then, not when something else burns down later on. Um, and, and to kind of bring it all together, um, this might be, like, I, I like to think of this as React for infrastructure. So if you've done front-end development, this model is actually really familiar to you with React. React as a, as a data source, that you use, and then it has a view, and you de you declare how the view is derived from the data source. And essentially, as soon as you s change the data source, the view automatically updates. It's exactly the same thing here. This is React for your infrastructure, right? This declarative model where you have data that then gets transcribed into a view. Well, the view in our case is a, a bunch of physical infrastructure, uh, but it's the same model. Data automatically derived into a set of views. Uh, and then when that data changes, the views get automatically updated. Um, yeah. Um, one of the questions uh, from earlier was, um, well, actually, let me, let me skip to this one. Uh, this because this is exactly what we're talking about. Uh, let me bring this one up. The question on 
what if flux agent is down will will it heal itself <laughs> uh, that's a, no, that's a really good question actually and the answer is no like as i said earlier right there's going to be a, a bottom layer where that that's going to trigger like you, you, the bottom layer is going to be imperatively created um so in our case for flux if you deploy open source flux then flux is your bottom layer right so you have to install the uh, flux and if that goes down then then it won't heal itself um you, what you can do is set up alerting for that to notice that on Kubernetes. So Kubernetes, uh, if you set up Prometheus, I'll, I'll just mention Prometheus alerts, right? Yeah, this is really yeah. common. You can set up a Prometheus alert so that as soon as that happens, as soon as your Flux deployment goes down, uh, you'll get a critical alert and say, I'm, I'm no longer in control of my system. Um, in in we've Cloud, what we've done is we've, we've have a, a kind of a, a beachhead agent that does actually monitor flux and brings it back if it changes, which which causes no end of confusion because people go and, and kind of manually modify the configuration for this stuff. And then within a few minutes, the configuration's back to the old one and, and they're quite confused. That's the GitOps loop in action, right? Um, uh, that is by design, not not by default. But yeah, so uh, fundamentally, there's going to be a layer where you, you need to monitor that in a traditional way. Right. And uh, another question similar to that was, is Flux running in its own pod on the cluster? Yes, is the answer. Absolutely. Flux is running it is it, as its own service, uh, as its own pod on the cluster. Uh, we actually um, deploy memcache uh, alongside Flux just to make operations a little bit easier and to, to, to reduce the load on various APIs. Um, so, yeah, it's a pod. It's, a collect it, it's just a pod on the cluster. Uh, and you could run it as a, I think it's, yeah, the, yes, is the answer. Yeah, and uh, it's, in it's interesting. This there's a, a question here that is uh, where is WeFlux better than Argo, and it and it leads me to a a slightly different dis discussion around that. There are there are traditionally we have had tools that are CI, and to me, a lot of CI tools, continuous integration tools, are really work like. They're automation engines. You you write in their language, and then it will do a bunch of things that you need it to do, and then give you reports and status and all that stuff. And over the years, we have started to take CI solutions and use them for building infrastructure and then doing the CD part, the CI CD part of continuous deployment or continuous delivery or whatever you D you want to put on the end there. Um, and it's what's interesting is I feel like with Flux and a few of these really new tools that are more focused on the, the Kubernetes specifically, they're separating out, and tell me if I'm wrong here, uh, they're separating out yeah. the CI/CD again, and they're making the CD part a discrete automated action so that your CI can then go back to just being the CI tool that it was probably designed to do, right? Yeah, like the, I'm so glad we're having this discussion, right? I, I, I keep saying this myself. Um, we, we, we've ended up using a bunch of build tools, essentially tools that are designed to build artifacts. Building immutable artifacts is, is the core of CI. And we've been using those building tools to automate infrastructure, and there's a massive friction. If, if, any, if you've ever tried to do infrastructure automation in Jenkins, you know exactly yeah. what pain I'm talking about here. Um, it's like those tools are designed for different purposes. So trying to say to separate those concerns of here's a tool that builds immutable images, immutable artifacts, software artifacts, uh, and then here's a tool that actually takes those artifacts and then applies them to an infrastructure. Those are completely separate concerns. The usability requirements are very different, right? You're going to be using a different interface to do both of those tasks. So that's that's one thing I really like is that we are now 
separating those concerns back out again into different tools. Um, I, I think you, you get, you know, it's it's slightly more complex in one way and, slight, and, and a lot less complex in another, uh, in that you have to learn another tool. But the good thing is that tool is designed specifically for that task. It's uh, it's it's kind of applying the Unix philosophy to your to your pipelines. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I'm not an Argo um, expert by uh, by the way, but I think that it does both CI and CD, and it, I think it's a relatively new tool compared to something like uh, Jenkins. So it'll be interesting to see how uh, the sort of I guess the new evolution of these CI CD tools that were built from the ground up with containers and specifically Kubernetes in mind, and are trying to solve uh, the problem that st traditional tools like Jenkins were was solving or Circle CI or whatever. And they're doing it without all of the history of this used to be largely a building tool and testing tool. Um, and so it's not like it's impossible to combine these tools together. But like you're discuss like you're saying, I've been on very large infrastructure projects where eventually the automation team and the the build engineering team, um, like the infrastructure automation team is not the same as the build engineer team for the developers, right? And they both want to use Jenkins. And it inevitably turns into two separate Jenkins deployments <laughs> because the the trying to get that one tool to to have the permissions and the security and making sure that the workflows are all isolated so that the people managing servers don't don't let the developers writing code that want to test a new thing change how their servers deploy. Right. So it's a more traditional, isolated, non DevOpsy approach, but it is a challenge and not every organization can achieve the goals they want when these tools are so deeply integrated, right? So it's nice to have an option. Yeah, and, and I think to, to go back to the, the original question around like where Flux is better than Argo, um, Flux and Argo are very similar projects. Argo has a bigger remit uh, around the automation um, in general, but it's still, I think, it's still pretty deliberately in the automation space and not in the build space, mm. uh, which is good. Okay. Um, and we, as I mentioned earlier, like expect much closer collaboration between the Flux team and the Argo team in the future. We're, yeah. we're trying to, to, to work together, really. And I think this is one of the few cases where we're seeing open source projects converging rather than diverging. They're not forking. They're kind of uh, conglomerate, uh, you know, conglomerating. Yeah. Um, and that is a good thing, right? Um, that, is a, that is a good thing to have that effort all point in one direction. Um, because it'll be better for the community, right? Because the tools, the, the responsibilities of Argo and Flux overlap. Um, they're not the same exactly, but they do overlap. And so uh, we should be seeing some really exciting things, which um, I can hint at, but I can't ex actually say <laughs> until we, we finish KubeCon. So right. expect, expect announcement in the next few weeks about this stuff. Uh, it's, uh, KubeCon is such a center of gravity for all this stuff uh, that this isn't the first podcast we've had this fall, uh, this autumn rather, that yeah. uh, people have said, um, so we'll talk to you near the end of the year about some new, <laughs> new stuff. I'm like, yeah, hmm, yeah, exactly. I wonder what thing happens near the end yeah. of the year. Um, so uh, I had another question. And, oh, what's the, uh, there's a new organization partnership around CI and CD. I know CloudBees was announcing it. Do you, can you remember what I'm, can't remember what I'm talking about. It, it's like, um, it was basically, Sorry, Brett, not sure. yeah, it was, it was, it was marketed as a, a sort of like a sub, a sub work group of the CIC of the uh, CNCF, but I'm not sure if it's tied directly to CNCF that was around CI companies uh, coming together on cloud native infrastructure and trying to agree on a lot of these things like file formats and 
uh, you know, whatever API standards or something. And I cannot think. Of yeah, I believe there's a special interest group for pipelines. So uh, I think I think that's in the work. I think it's going to take a while for that to come out and uh, be kind of usable and, and be kind of useful uh, out of beta, you know. Um, but I think there is a special interest group within the Kubernetes space uh, for cloud native pipeline definitions. Uh, so that we have a common format for pipelines, and that would include CI, and that would include CD, and, and automation in general. Right. Uh, and those, what's really exciting is they're already thinking about declarative pipelines. <laughs> yeah, and uh, this I've said this several times on the podcast since DockerCon in June or May. No, maybe April, May uh, was right around DockerCon, and one of the when we were I had a live show from DockerCon, right. And one of the discussions that kept coming up on the, on the sidelines and we just talked about in the show was that, you know, containers is approaching a solved problem. You know, we've, we've got all these different standards now with the OCI and uh, whatnot. And now orchestration is starting to figure a little bit of that out, even though um, you, you, there's a lot of commonalities with things between like Kubernetes and Swarm. But the divert, I think it's they're they're tending to get more diverged at this point, or Kubernetes has just taken off and everything else is sort of staying where it's at. And um, there was a lot of conversation around that the CI/CD world is the next big opportunity. So we were seeing new startups, new funded startups in Silicon Valley around automation and CI, and we're seeing all these little container-focused startups that are related to you know, security automation. And, you know, stuff like this, right? Exact, this kind of exact thing. And so th th there was a discussion for like 20 minutes around how, you know, what are we going to see in this space that's going to, you know, what inventions will there be in three years that we're going, oh, we got to all have this now. And I feel like we're getting pretty close to it, like with this GitOps stuff. Um, it's, it's really interesting, the parallel between that and physical containerization, right? Like physically containerizing goods enabled a whole bunch of workflows that just could not be done before. And I think what we're, what we're seeing is kind of the same process in the digital space. Like with containerizing stuff, that's actually started, to, well, it's already enabled a bunch of things that couldn't be possible before. And we're still seeing, we, we still haven't finished, that wave hasn't kind of passed completely yet. We're still seeing a bunch of stuff. And I think that's what you're, the, the kind of the uh, CI/CD opportunities, I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, definitely the the... And, and the idea that you had earlier that's really sticking with me is the idea that <laughs> uh, I'm putting this tool in my cluster that's going to make git commits to the repo that I created in order to automate the cluster. Like that <laughs> that uh, inception layer of automation there is actually really interesting. And I think, because uh, we, we keep hearing these marketing terms and you see it in certain news outlets about, you know, the automation of that. The AI in infrastructure, uh, this is like a thing that I keep reading about. And of course, everyone has to throw the word AI in everything because that makes it suddenly more interesting. Um, Doubles your VC funding, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. You got to get, in order to get your funding, you've got to have AI on the front page. And uh, I, I never really, I, I keep reading about it and I still don't really, I haven't seen it. So I'm not really on board with that idea yet. But I feel like this is one tiny little, you know, toe in the water of what we're talking about here is that this isn't AI, this is just automation, no. but that eventually there will be enough intelligence where, uh, you know, the auto rollbacks uh, maybe is already a feature where if you're having deployments that are starting to have, you know, that your health checks are failing, your liveness checks are failing or whatever, that the this uh, automation is just going to simply revert to the last, it's basically going to do a git commit where it reverts back and that will then lead it down the road of of rolling back even though we've got these features in 
Kubernetes of rollback, um, that that itself doesn't necessarily feed back into your Git repo. So um, there's discussions where some of us, when we get when we have too many beers and we're discussing what is truly um, declarative, talking about things like rollbacks that that are te- that's technically not declarative because it's the, the end state is not what I committed to code or committed to the, the repo, stuff like that. So it's interesting um, where this is all going. So it's really interesting you mentioned that. So Flagger does that exact thing oh, okay. right, with Canary releases. I figured somebody's so already Flagger doing does it. That, yeah, yeah. So Flagger has already started to do that exact thing. There's no, it's not intelligent in that way. It's, it's, it's uh, very well, it's not, there's no machine learning or AI in it. Um, but what it does do is it'll actually take um, a Canary release, check that the, actual new version is meeting all the requirements you've defined and if it does it'll roll it out and if it doesn't it'll roll it back so some of that automation is already there with flagger um, at least for you know blue green deployments canary deployments etc but i think that there's definitely there's scope you know because we now have agents software and human agents on the same level they can both make pull requests and make commits to the git repository we can see some like small opportunities grow for kind of future smart, smarter automation, right? Right now we're just encoding good practice in a tool and it's just tr- traditional automation. But I can definitely see a software that looks at a set of configuration repositories and says, here's a suggestion, right? I, c- I think if you um, change those requests and limit, then your cluster will work better. Uh, I think if you set up those priority classes for your various containers then, or for, for your various pods, then that's going to be more more efficient use of your resources. Um, I believe you can remove a node here. I need. I believe you need to add a node here. Um, all of those things, uh, I think we're going to start to see. We're already seeing, and I think Git, GitHub, the company, has, has been driving some of this. Uh, we're already seeing some really interesting stuff around security pull requests. So software making pull requests to update your version of, a, of, a, of an insecure dependency. Um, and, and I think that kind of model will grow over time. And, and we're seeing the growth there. I don't think the growth has gone exponential yet, but it will do um, at some point in the future. And that's going to be quite exciting. Yeah, that's super, definitely super early days. In fact, ju- I'm glad you mentioned that because just this week I was looking at Sneak uh, and it has an option that in the interface that says, would you like me to automatically merge these PRs for your security updates and your app dependencies? Because it's already sending me weekly yeah. emails about all my stuff saying, here's all the things you, here's your work for the week. Go check and test and do all these things. And a lot of it for, in my case, is sample code. I'm, you know, for, for training and workshops and online courses, I'm, I provide a lot of sample tools and sample code. And Every once in a while, a student will say, hey, this one's got a bunch of security vulnerabilities. You should totally update it. And I look back and I realize I, I was ignoring the GitHub emails and the sneak emails. And now sneak is saying, yeah, um, I'm not just going to do PRs for you. But I, if you just do this, I will automatically merge into your ma- whatever branch you want me to merge it into. And I haven't clicked it, but I, I know that I probably it's that is better than the alternative, which is waiting on the human to slowly get around to actually updating that stuff. I mean, maybe in some cases, since it's not doing true testing in the background, it's not like it's going and doing full CI to validate that that change won't break anything. But the chances are that, you know, preventing the security vulnerability is probably better than the likelihood of it breaking in my sample apps, right? Maybe for real production stuff. Go ahead. I could definitely see the way where, like, instead of making a commit straight into your master branch and changing the code, it would actually make a PR that would trigger your CI pipeline to double check everything is working as expected. And mm. only if it's green, then it would go, okay, I've made my change. It's all green. Let me m- merge that. So now you have a 
you literally have a software software developer, right? Um, that's that's kind of making security yeah. improvements to your software over time. So I, that's that's something that's within our grasp right now. Yeah. And I think in the future, and this, this is not even, I mean, this isn't even AI really, right? No. This is just good automation with good interface, right? We started yeah. broken, bre- breaking responsibilities up into modules and concerns up, and that allows, enables certain use cases. So I think that's, that's quite exciting. I'm looking forward to kind of... Um, automating myself out of a job in like five to 10 years time. Uh, I think that that should be all about like, that should be a deep seated desire for all of us to automate ourselves out of our jobs. Absolutely. Um, You know, there is this thing uh, for, you know, for forever, especially with Linux uh, sysadmins, you know, the, one of the first slides they'll put up is uh, I, I do all of this because I'm lazy and I don't want to do it again. And that was essentially early automation. We were writing scripts. Now we're, having basically this is all APIs talking to APIs talking to APIs and we're just watching it all happen and we say we want to automate ourselves out of a job uh, but really we <laughs> we have to continually be on top of that automation or we will truly be automated out of a job like so many people are in, in the, the modern day and age um, where we keep we keep finding ways for robots to do the human things um, by the way um, the thing that we were thinking about I just put it in the chat uh, was CI, a CD foundation um, someone in chat figured it out as well as Ray. And that was the thing I was thinking of. It was, I don't know, it was announced earlier this nice. year. It's yep. a, it's, it's probably the thing that is related to the working group in the CNCF. It is a Linux foundation project. Um, and it lists some stuff in there, but yeah, I think largely these are all the same goals, right? That we, we agree on the things that are unopinionated and that are really need to be the foundation for how all these tools work together. But then we all diverge when it comes to opinions and workflows on how we think things should be done, right? So. Yeah, I think um, this is what I found as you know, working as consultant is most of the time it's the politics that you need to sort out rather than the technical side, and that's very true for all this stuff, right? I think the technical side is is pretty straightforward around the automation. It's it's you know, there's no rocket science in here. There's no fancy algorithm. It's all very straightforward. Here's an event. This is what you do after the event. Um, so getting the politics of it and getting that right for both the community. So that's like the, I would call it the macro scale politics and the micro scale politics of within an organization. Those actually tend to be the harder problems for me that I encounter on a day to day basis. Um, it's almost never the technical problems, right? Right. We, we 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 are good. Like we've gotten to a point where we can we know how to solve technical problems quite well. We have really smart people in the industry, um, really smart people working in those companies. So the the technical problems can just disappear very fast. But the human problems, the politics problem, the process problems, those are the ones I actually encountered that are difficult to solve. Uh, so like the automation out of a job is so I can concentrate on those kind of problem, uh, which are about you know change management and people management and not software management. I think that's that's where I see kind of I see it going, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so we're hitting an over an hour on the show. Th- uh, we've got some. I think we've got all the questions out of the way. Actually, wait, maybe one. Uh, super technical question here. Uh, <laughs> can we can we Helm install Flux on an existing case cluster and task it with future updates? Yes. Uh, the, the short answer is yes. Uh, the, the longer answer is um, this requires a bunch of you know random configuration stuff, but uh, the short answer is yes, you can do that. Yeah. So you can install Flux with Helm if you want, and then uh, as soon as that's up and running, you can configure Flux to point to the right repository, and Flux will start taking over. Um, there, there are kind of... 
I would say more more advanced patterns when you have multi-tenancy and you want every tenant to have their own repository and uh, you want to create clusters with uh, pre-provision with flux in each namespace and stuff like that. So there's a bunch of enterprise use cases, but fundamentally, yes, you can install with Helm and yes, you can then have flux take over and, for the deployment. Yeah, cool. So this whole time we've been talking about GitOps, which isn't Kubernetes specific, but at least with the tools that we're talking about today mostly they are uh those tools are kubernetes specific so i don't want you to think that GitOps is only possible if you do if you decide to go with kubernetes because obviously not everybody needs an orchestrator yet not everybody's choosing kubernetes yet um so if they're just trying to do GitOps in general and they're they haven't yet decided on tools and we're talking about more the human processes and the, the getting started stuff uh, I was trying to think, like, what are the what are the two or three things we can send people away with? I feel like at least one of them is you you probably should have everything related to your servers in either YAML or TOML or JSON or whatever the, those descriptors are, right? Yeah, so start declaring stuff and, and start driving your automation from those declarations. That, that's the first thing. Um, and, and we have some really good tools to do that right now that are very broadly applicable. So... Um, the, the HashiCorp configuration language and Terraform, so HCL Terraform, already meets those requirements of being declarative, of being human readable, um, of being applicable. What, what's missing for those is just the, the final control loop at the bottom, you know, number four. Uh, but you can, still, you can start committing those to Git, um, all of that. You can already do that with a lot of cloud providers too. So, you know, AWS cloud formations. Uh, they're not necessarily the, the kind of the most user-friendly um, interface, but they have those features of being declarative. Um, and, and what we haven't got yet on those either is the continuous drift correction. We have drift detection, just not drift correction. Yeah. Uh, but I, I would say like a concrete example is we manage our GitHub permissions for our organization. And I was doing some of this stuff today. Uh, we, we manage those through Terraform. Right, we manage our entire every repository we create is in Terraform. It is defined in Terraform. Uh, write protection on the branches is defined in Terraform. Uh, membership to organization, collaborators, all of that stuff is defined in Terraform for us. Uh, which means that we, we we now have kind of a really strong pipeline and really strong governance of our access control for those things, uh, which which is quite quite nice right it's a nice feature and it's using GitOps in a in a place where it's not kubernetes at all right we're, we're literally driving github yeah uh the github api uh through through apps yeah i guess if you're exclusive to github and you're using all the new things that all the new features they have uh like branch branch con uh, permissions and the, yeah. the new uh automation actions um maybe there maybe you need to uh th those people need to label it as github ops so, because <laughs> uh, they're they're definitely uh, part of the part of the wave of leading that effort on an automation based out of a, a Git application, a Git based application. So, all right. So the first step is get these things in YAML. It sounds like the next step is have tools that will re that will basically get hooks or look for changes in a, in that Git repo and then respond accordingly to those changes. Um, whether or not that is a Git ops labeled tool. If you're not in a, a place with your infrastructure where you can just suddenly do the flux thing on Kit Kubernetes, or maybe you're not doing all that stuff yet, you're getting your tools to take the changes from that Git repo and make them uh, and basically apply them. It sounds like that's probably the next step. 
so that hum- and the idea there is humans aren't running the commands to apply the changes, right? Because I think that's kind of like the infrastructure is code. That's what we did. That's what we learned how to do that then. We, we made changes in YAML. Then I would probably go make the changes on the servers. Like I would, I would run the Terraform. I'd run the, the Ansible of that YAML. And then if it worked, then I would commit it <laughs> to the Git repo only at that point. So the, the Git log maybe reflected changes, but it was only after the fact because I wouldn't want to commit something that was broken. Um, so it, that, that to me, that, that's, those are the behaviors that you've got to go through on your way to GitOps. If you're someone who has no infrastructure as code today and you're not putting stuff in YAML and you're not putting stuff in Git, like it just and simply installing Flux to me is like, that's, that's a huge culture shift change that you're going to have to adopt. As, and then maybe the tool will enforce you to do it, right? Maybe the tool is the way to enforce you to adopt all these good practices. And that's not necessarily always a bad thing. Yeah, and and I would make the point that you what you really want to be doing too is separating those concerns between um, creating artifacts and deploying them. I think that's that's a big step, and it doesn't mean it really matter what in what what your target environment is, hmm. but you're going to have immutable like start with start with immutable artifacts, right? Think about try and bring immutability into your system, because a lot of the time what we find is um, you know people will will modify a, a live system instead of um, changing from one immutable ver- uh, kind of version or configuration or state to another immutable state. Right. And that's where the real trouble comes in because you can't, you cannot determine what state your system's in from the outside anymore. Um, and, and you don't have predictability about the state of your system. So I would say have a, have a drive towards immutability and um, separate the concerns of deployment and creation of the immutable artifacts. Um, yeah, I, I guess that's fairly abstract. That's very high level abstract, but they're good kind of principles and guidelines to to drive in to drive you in the right direction. Yeah, there's there's uh, this is one of those things where I hate to say like maybe maybe hire a consultant that knows this stuff um, because it's I'm imagining the workflow diagram of this is where you are now as an organization, right? In terms of the people, the process, the tooling, and then on the other end of this, there's we have all the four principles of of GitOps implemented. And there's this crazy mesh of decision factors and all that stuff all in the middle. And so I'm imagining that eventually uh, this will become easier and we'll have, I might have a course on it someday, who knows? Um, and we'll have a way to teach people from the, po- the the process overview and the human side of it. And then at the end, you'll eventually pick a tool. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, yeah, thank you like, so- uh- Oh, good. Any good consultant will always answer, you know, it depends. Um, That's so. how I always answer it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm right. also, I've also learned recently that I'm really good at giving you an answer that is, is the answer I don't know, but I, I spend 10 minutes telling you how I don't know. And then it sounds <laughs> right. like I'm smart. I, I didn't know that I had, actually had that skill, but recently it became, it came to <laughs> To me, that yeah, that's that's what I was doing. Every time they answer, ask a question, I was answering for like three or four minutes, but I didn't have any idea what the answer was. Um, so maybe that's why I'm still a consultant. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, um, Brees. Tell us about where are you on the internet? Like, where can we find you? We see your Twitter handle down there, but the people on the podcast can't read that. So let us know. Uh, yeah. So if if you want to reach out, um, I'm on Twitter at, at fractal lambda. Uh, that's uh, not lambda. That's not the, the the dance. It's lambda, like the Greek letter. So fractal lambda. Um, you can reach me on my email for for any WeWork stuff related at brees at weave dot works. We've got quite a funky uh, 
domain name. Uh, so if people want to reach me, that's that's the way to do it. Uh, and everything is probably going to be linked from my Twitter uh, bio anyway, so you can find everything else from there. Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I look forward to the next time we have you on the show and talking more about GitOps because we can, like you guys can see, we can talk about this for hours. Um, and it's, I'm hope hopefully you learned something. We will be live next week again back here on the show. I don't know who our guest is going to be, so you'll just have to like and subscribe to the channel to figure that out. And we will see you next time on YouTube Live. Thanks. Thank you so much, Brett. Thank you, everybody. Bye. So thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.